everyone. It's Maddie Rowley for Public. I'm honored to be joined today by Heather McDonald, who is the Thomas W. Smith Fellow at the Manhattan Institute, a contributing editor of City Journal, and a New York Times bestselling author. Her new book titled When Race Trumps Merit, How the Pursuit of Equity Sacrifices Excellence, Destroys Beauty, and Threatens Lives, covers the fallout after the 2020 Black Lives Matter protests and discusses alternative explanations for racial disparities in American society. Welcome, Heather. Okay, so my first question that I, every time I see your work, every time I see like your your, uh, presentation at Berkeley Law School, Every time I think to myself, Heather McDonald is virtually uncancelable. I mean, the things that you say are so controversial in this day and age, and yet you're so clear about it. You're concise and you are unafraid. Um, And my question is, are you scared about that getting canceled or doxxed? Has that crossed your mind? Well, I was doxxed several years ago long before the George Floyd race insanity took over the country, uh, the a Black Lives Matter chapter in Austin, Texas, published my personal information on the web uh, with the line about, you know, journalists don't get off either. And so I did have for a while uh, NYPD security around my apartment. They were very grateful for the fact that I live in a high rise in New York City and therefore you know, it would be harder to identify me as opposed to in a freestanding home. Uh, but nothing ever came of that. Otherwise, um, I I don't think about it. No, I don't. Because at this point, I feel the urgency of trying to combat the lies that are taking down Western civilization too strongly to start watching what I say. I, I just think one has to speak the truth in the hope that other people will follow. Absolutely. And I know what you write and what you say um, certainly makes people think, which is the hope nowadays. Um, so I uh, read your book. I'm actually almost done. I'm listening to it on audio. Um, and my question that, you know, I'm, I'm, I had read about how um, elites fault, immediately fault cops for racism when there is a, um, a officer involved shooting. Um, and to me, you know, if you just take it one step further, it's just not logical to blame on the police. Um, like you mentioned in the book, well, why was that 17 year old out at 2 AM in the car? Shouldn't he have been at home? Um, and, and you give several examples of that. So I truly am confused as to how the cops shoulder all this blame. Um, and I was hoping you could talk about that a little bit. Why are they always the ones to blame? And why doesn't anyone, including especially the elites, go one step further and think about, you know, maybe this is a parenting problem? Well, it's simply the rule of our world now when it comes to so-called victim groups uh, we hold them absolutely free of any expectation of personal responsibility. There's simply no possible agency that they can exercise uh, that you know the, the elites find reasonable. They are always and everywhere a victim and of, of these massive systemic racist forces. Uh, and that's a change. You know, I remember in the 1990s, it was still possible, 
for some sociologists, black sociologists to boot like Elijah Anderson or Orlando Patterson to speak about the dysfunctional inner city culture that was giving rise to the insane drive-by shootings. And they, they observed this dispassionately. They weren't necessarily condemning it, but they weren't affirming it. But you could at least say that there's something more at work here than just a systemically racist society in higher rates of black crime or black victimization or even black police shootings by the police. Now that's not possible. The only allowable explanation for any racial disparity, whether it's the underrepresentation of blacks in meritocratic institutions or the overrepresentation of blacks in, in the criminal justice system, the only allowable explanation is racism. You are never allowed to speak about behavior. We see this as well. I mean, equally tragically, when it comes to health disparities, you have major medical journals now or, or scientific journals like Scientific American saying it is racist to talk about obesity as a factor in poorer health outcomes for black females. You may not talk about that. That's racist. The only allowable explanation is systemic racism. Well, what if it turns out that obesity is a more significant factor in higher rates of, say, maternal mortality uh, or diabetes or heart attacks, but we've ruled this out purely on ideological grounds you're not going to be helping uh, the victims that you purport to be helping. As far as policing goes, uh, it's just of a piece. You know, you cannot say that the reality is what predicts being shot by the police is being involved in violent crime and resisting arrest. Uh, and that is is much more likely in the black population. This is not to say that all blacks are criminals by any means, but it is the case that the black involvement in violent crime, both as victims and as perpetrators, is magnitudes higher. And that means that police officers, when they're being called to the scene of a drive-by shooting, are overwhelmingly being called to situations with black victims and black perpetrators. Here's the statistics, Maddie. In New York City, blacks are about 22% of the population. They commit about three quarters of all drive-by shootings each year. If you add Hispanics shootings to black shootings, you account for virtually 100% of all drive-by shootings in New York City. Wow. So the police hope against hope when they get a shots fired call coming across the police radio, that for once they will go to a scene and be given the description of a white shooting victim if anybody is cooperating with the police for once, it virtually never happens. Black juveniles after the George Floyd race riots are shot at 100 times the rate of white juveniles. Wow. Who's shooting them? Not the police, not whites, but other blacks. The, the crime disparities are that much higher. The elites, the activists, the Black Lives Matter activists, the Democratic politicians, they turn their eyes away from that reality. They don't want to look squarely at inner city pathologies. And instead, the only allowable explanation is racism.
Wow. And, and what a luxury to be able to, you know, turn away from those statistics. Um, you know, they aren't on the ground living in or near any of these communities. And I know that um, in, I think, several of your articles, and even I think in your book, you mentioned that um, these inner city communities, um, primarily uh, where African-Americans live, they want more policing because they also don't feel safe. Um, and I also feel like that's not a message that the media uh, reports on. You don't, you don't see that. Right. Yeah, I mean, it's a mixed picture. I mean, I have made sort of a crusade of giving voice to those thousands of law-abiding, hardworking, sympathetic, just, just heartbreakingly sympathetic inner city residents who show up every month at the police community meetings at their local precinct and who beg for more policing, who say to the cops, you arrest the drug dealers, they're back on the corner the next day. Why can't you keep them off the street? Why are you allowing kids to hang out by the hundreds on the corners fighting? Whatever happened to enforcement of truancy laws, of loitering laws, those people exist and the media never seems to find them. The New York Times never seems to find them. The Black Lives Matter activists don't give a damn about them. They don't give a damn about black children who've been gunned down in their beds and front yards and jumping on trampolines and in their back porches since the George Floyd race hysteria and riots. Uh, but I have to say there is still support in the black community for the we are victim narrative and and hatred for the cops. You know, it was uh, it's otherwise inexplicable that in the recent elections in Chicago for mayor, you had two Democrats running against each other. One of them was slight was more pro police, Paul Vallis, and the the other guy, Brandon Johnson. The highest percentage of his vote was in black precincts. He's black, and he ran on an explicitly defund the police type platform. He may not have ex always used those words, but he was very much, oh, we have to look at social causes, root causes. We can't over police these neighborhoods. You know, we've got a problem here with policing. They voted him in. So it's, it's, a, it's a divided consciousness that is very difficult to figure out politically. I see. Um and, and something that you just mentioned that made me think of, you know, at what point, this is now, you know, th this, this crime, especially in like Oakland, you see it, San Francisco, obviously, Philly, et cetera, cities, New York, the list goes on. But even, you know, where I live in Maryland, for example, I tried to um, go to church the other day in the middle of the day and um, only to learn that they keep it locked due to theft now. Um, so, you know, this is starting to affect just like everyday Americans lives. And when do you think there might be a shift on this crime? Um, how much, where's the threshold? When do you think this will turn around? Well, that's the big question. I mean, that, that is the utter, utter puzzler, Maddie. Mm -hmm. And I don't know. It seems like the tolerance of people who have bought into the anti-bourgeois ethic that say that respect for the law, respect for the police, support for law enforcement is racist, that their tolerance for anarchy and squalor and crime yeah. is infinite. You know, a lot of people were predicting that the midterm elections in 2022, that crime was going to be a big issue. 
It wasn't, and I disagree with many of my fellow, I'll say the term conservatives. I mean, that's a little broad, but but generally, you know, I'm fairly characterized as one, and and the people I view as as sort of fellow travelers ideal, ideologically are conservative. People were saying, "Oh, it's going to make a big difference." I don't think it did. I really don't. Um, maybe in the in the New York State governor race where the Republican came much closer than anybody would have expected. But in other places, voters voted for the status quo. And I've always said when when white kids start getting shot in these insane drive by shootings, maybe then something will turn around. But the but the spread has been going on for a long time. It's not just recent. The carjackings before the 22 uh, midterm elections, you had suburban uh gas stations in Chicago setting up times with police protection so you could go and fill up your car without worrying about getting carjacked. It's been going on for a long time. The carjackings are totally out of control in the suburbs of Minneapolis, again, around Chicago, uh, Los Angeles, San Francisco, and people just put up with it. I, I don't know. And we've somehow lost a sense that we are absolutely entitled to expect no crime. We shouldn't put up with a single crime. Mm -hmm. You know, it is a statistical certainty that every day in New York City, hundreds of business owners will be the victim of theft. You, you do the arithmetic, hundreds. And yet Mayor Eric Adams spends his day doing anything but that. The only thing that should concern any mayor is getting a handle on crime. No business owner should live under that statistical certainty. It is unacceptable. I would even say that the constant attacks on property, the, the massive looting and shoplifting that's going on, is in a sense even a greater indicia of the despairing breakdown and 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 sort of giving up on normal, legitimate expectations of law and order than the violence. Because the, the protection of property, the ability to engage in commerce, to create a business enterprise, to expect that government will protect your well-being, including your property, is fundamental to civil society. And we're just throwing these people to the wolves, uh, you know. These and these and the reason. I mean, let's let's cut to the chase here, Maddie. The reason for all of this, the reason for this passivity, and before massive anarchy, the throwing up the hands in in surrender, is all because of disparate impact. That is the only reason that we are not enforcing the law against shoplifting, against trespassing, against turnstile jumping, fair evasion, resisting arrest, drug possession, drug, small drug dealing, uh, disorderly conduct. It's only because when the police make arrests for those crimes or the prosecutors prosecute for those crimes, they will have a disparate impact on black criminals. Mm -hmm. That's why we're not enforcing the law. If you don't understand that about our current capitulation before the forces of crime and anarchy, you have understood nothing. 
And that's such a great point. And it brings me back to the beginning of your book when uh, when you are talking about how successful uh, former Mayor Rudy Giuliani was in New York City um, and how he just completely uh, cut crime. I forget the exact statistic, but I remember thinking, oh, my gosh, you know, that's unbelievable. Um, And it seemed like the prosecutors were prosecuting. They were doing their jobs under him. The police were enforcing the law under him. Um, and and the result was a safe New York City. And part of me does wonder, you know, are we are so conditioned now to accept crime. Um, I will admit I was a little shocked that I was locked out of church because uh, um, but I, you know, I live about 10 miles outside of Baltimore. Um, and uh, I just think that we're almost conditioned to accept it, like you said. And I and I wonder if people also just don't really remember a time uh, where there wasn't, where crime was low, where um, they felt safe. Um, I, like, I don't really remember a time. Um, you, you always have to ha- have your head on my, I always have my head on a swivel. Um, but I, I almost just think that and wonder if people have just forgotten what it's like. And thus they're just accepting the reality as is, which is unfortunate. Um, Well, you know, there's plenty of people in New York City who did live through the 1990s with just the stunning drop. Eventually, pre-George Floyd, crime dropped about 85% in New York City. This was something that no criminologist and no police chief outside of Commissioner Bratton and, and his successors in the New York Police Department ever thought possible. They received wisdom in the criminology profession and in most of the policing profession was that the police could not lower crime, that that was a question of root causes. You had to solve poverty and income inequality and racism, and the police could only respond. Uh, But there's many people in New York who did live through the 90s, which was just a stunning time. And yet now they seem to have collective amnesia and are willing to accept a condition that is simply unacceptable. and but again, I can't stress enough, Maddie. The reason things worked in in the 1990s was the, our leaders said we are going to enforce the law in a colorblind fashion. We will have a implicitly. You have to say it will have a disparate impact on black criminals. But here is the stri- rhetorically strategic way of getting around that problem, which is the way most conservatives finesse the issue is, but if you avoid enforcing the law to avoid a disparate impact on black criminals, you're really going to have a disparate impact on black victims. So usually the safe way to talk about black criminal offending is to stress exclusively black victimization. Uh, Blacks die of gun homicide between the ages of 10 and 24 at 24 times the rate of whites in that same age cohort after George Floyd with the race riots and the and the repeated emasculation of the police and their vilification by President Joe Biden and other democratic politicians and, and de-policing, uh, we had the largest one year increase in homicide in this nation's history and the burden of that increase fell disproportionately again on blacks. Uh, but in the 90s, we sort of proceeded anyway because we understood that society depends on 
public safety and the law-abiding blacks are going to be hurt the most. Frankly, I'm willing to play that game, but I'm also willing to say nobody should be subjected to, to crime. The problem is not just black victims, it's white victims as well. It's white store owners or Jewish store owners or Asian store owners who are being victimized by these black looters. So we should be able to speak out for law and order without having our sort of white flag, don't shoot us down, being the black victim problem. Yes, that's a problem, but it's a, it's a broader problem as well. Mm-hmm. We've reached the end of this episode of the free version of Public's podcast. To access the full version, become a paying subscriber at public.substack.com.